This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Because if you're an entrepreneur, your ass is going to be kicked harder than you can imagine. You are going to be taken down on that coral and you're going to be jammed there with a 20-foot wave landing on your head. And you're going to be wondering how you can just get back to the surface and then find your board to paddle back out. So you have to be ready, if you're going to be an entrepreneur, to paddle back out. And I always thought, no matter what happened, I was always, uh, I always had that um, will, the will to paddle back out. Well, they came here at a time when I was pretty wild, you know, more rough than it is these days, like the wild, wild west. Ian writes a headline on my column, Aloha is dead. There was a pride, a pride at stake here. They could not go anywhere. The center is the customer. They're the ones who are paying for everything. I just saw this as, oh my God, this is like my chance. Quarter of a million dollars, it was almost surreal. You can't just cut out one person in the supply chain in order to solve the problem. Those are the kind of people you want. You respect them, their integrity, their intelligence, their ability, their can-do attitude, hard work. Welcome to the third installment of the Fall 2016 UC Santa Barbara Distinguished Speaker Series. I'm John Greathouse, and you can follow me on Twitter, at John Greathouse. So tonight, I've been waiting to say these words, we have a living legend with us. He is living, and he is a legend, and I'm not kidding. We have Sean Thompson here with us. Sean is a former uh, world-serving champion, best-selling author, inspirational speaker, environmentalist, and serially successful entrepreneur. A native of South Africa, he spent 14 years on the pro surfing circuit and winning 19 major surfing competitions all over the world. So if I stopped right there, all the people all over the world that are watching this would say, oh, okay, John's got a cool surfer, sounds like the guy was pretty good, should be an interesting conversation. And I think just that alone would merit Sean coming up here and talk, telling us his story. But the reality is, Sean is an incredible entrepreneur. He, along with a handful of other very young people that were the age of the people sitting in this room right now, created the pro surfing industry. When Sean started competing, if you got lunch money as, as prize money, you were pretty happy. They were li- literally giving away like cans of spam to the winner. Um, they're just, it was just more for fun. It was just, you know, they have an occasional competition here, there, and, and everywhere, but there was no pro circuit. And a handful of young men said, listen, we want to create an industry. We, want, we, we, think we're, we think we are professional athletes. We want to be treated like professional athletes, but they had to actually create that reality. It didn't exist for them uh, before. So if that was all Sean did as an entrepreneur, I'd say that would be pretty impressive. Uh, but he's done more than that. He's shown his entrepreneurial skills in other ways. Uh, he founded Instinct, which is a multi-million dollar international apparel uh, brand. And then along with his wife, Carla, uh, he founded Solitude Sportswear, another multi-million dollar um, sports apparel brand. He's produced a film called Busting Down the Door. I highly recommend it. It's a great story about how, uh, how the surf industry was created, but also about it's – a, it's a great human story about – 
um, the Hawaiians and their surf culture and, and the way it was almost taken away from them by some folks that uh, were young and ignorant and probably less humble than they should have been. He's also written two best-selling books, uh, The Surfer's Code, as well as The Code, and we're going to talk about The Code today. Uh, the Code is Sean's latest book. Uh, highly recommend it. It's great for young people, but it's really great for all ages. Um, what Sean uh, compels you to do is write out your, your code. Um, what are the 12 aphorisms that start with I will that you will live by? Hugely important for anyone, especially for young people to do. As if that wasn't enough, Sean's also found time to give back to the community, both on a global as well as a local level. He's, for many years, he was involved in the, as a board member of the Surfrider Foundation, uh, and he's also been very um, active in the Boys and Girls Club. So I'm going to read you a few of the <laughs> awards that Sean's gotten over the years. Some of these are pretty incredible. Uh, he was listed as one of the 25 most influential surfers of the last century. He was one of the 16 greatest surfers of all time, the greatest tube rider of all time, he was on the cover of Surfing and Surfer Magazine nine different times. He was awarded um, into the, inducted into the Jewish Sports Hall of Fame, as well as the South African Sports Hall of Fame. He was given the, the SIMA, S-I-M-A, Environmentalist Award, uh, and he was given the Surfrider Lifetime Achievement Award. Pretty, uh, pretty incredible. He earned his undergraduate degree in business finance from Carmel College, and he went on to earn a master's of science and leadership from the University of Natal, which is also in South Africa. So Sean's an accomplished entrepreneur. He's done some incredible things. But I think what I, what I look forward to the most is for you to hear his positive message, especially in the face of tragedy. We all face tragedies. Young, you're young. Maybe you haven't quite faced them yet. You will, unfortunately. I hate to break that news to you. But it's not the fact that you will that you will face a tragedy that defines you. It's how you deal with that tragedy that really defines who you are. Uh, Sean's powerful, positive message is incredible. I can't wait for you to hear it. Let's welcome him to our class. Thank, uh, thank you so much uh, <clears throat> for that wonderful welcome, John, and thanks to all of you for such a cool welcome. It's great to, to look around the lecture hall and see those skateboards lined up on the wall. Let me tell you, in my days at university, that wasn't going to happen. <laughs> so um, I wanted to say, before John and I get into the discussion, I wanted to tell you a couple of stories just to give you some context for our discussion and to give you a little bit of an insight um, into my life. So, <clears throat> I'm 61 years old. I've been surfing since 1965. I spent a lot of years in the water, just sitting out there waiting for that wave. And I'm still passionate about surfing. Surf's going to be 8 to 10 feet tomorrow, and I'm going to be down there at 7 a.m. I'm still stoked. And uh, my mates know that I'm still stoked and I still like to paddle out there and I like to push it hard and I like on every wave to try to be the best that I can be. I've been the same way since I was nine years old when I first started surfing. Every wave I try to be the best I can be and that's been my philosophy through, throughout my entire life. So last year I was back in South Africa, my homeland. I'm from, uh, from South Africa. I immigrated to the United States in 1984. And the day I got back, 
my mate phoned me up and he said, Sean, the surf's going to be incredible tomorrow. And I want to take you to a break. You've never surfed before. <clears throat> so I'd surfed along the entire eastern coast of South Africa growing up in the area that I lived in called Durban, which is at about 32 degrees latitude, subtropical. The water never drops below 75 degrees. But the only place that I used to surf were breaks with shark nets. Because the most feared predator in the area where I lived, it wasn't the lion or the wildebeest or the hippo, it was the Zambezi. Zambezi sharks. And they'd congregate. Wherever there was a river mouth, the Zambezi would congregate because they loved river water. They'd even been found 600 k's upstream. And the, it was a voracious eater and killer. 95% of the attacks in South Africa happened from a Zambezi. My dad was nearly killed by Zambezi before I was born. And my earliest memories of him taking me down to the beach, teaching me how to surf and swim, like 100 meters away from where he'd been nearly nailed by Zambezi. So his arm was savaged by the sharks. So every day I'd see my dad's arm, and it reminded me they had the Zambezi. So sharks were always that elemental primal fear that I had of going surfing. So my mate's telling me, I'm taking you to a place you never surfed before. I knew that was a break with no shark nets. So we wake up early in the morning, it's like half past five in the morning, winter in South Africa, cold there, but the water's really warm. We drive down this like road to this isolated break, and we jump out. First thing I see is the river mouth. <laughs> and I know the river mouth's end easy, but the waves are incredible, just pumping down this point towards us, these incredible tubes. The ultimate moment in surfing is when you ride inside the tube, and we're just seeing these incredible tubes rifling down towards us. So we quickly strip off, put our wetsuits on, and we start running down the beach towards this incredible point in these incredible waves that are about 8 to 10 feet. And as we're running down the point together, because we're on the east coast, the sun rises in the east. And as we're running down the beach, that sun is boiling up. looks like it's boiling up through the Indian Ocean. And because the air is cold, the water is warm, this mist is rising from the water. So it's like this sort of surreal sight, the sun is rising through this mist and these incredible waves are coming down towards us and they're breaking onto themselves and creating this compressed air that shoots out. The spit that's being shot out of these waves like out of a cannon. And as we're running up the beach, the spit's coming down towards us, the mist is rising. And man, I just felt like I was in the right place at the right time. You know, you just get that connection deep to nature and deep to my homeland of Africa. We jumped in the water and we paddled out into this beautiful, clear water, and we sat there, and I waited for that first wave to come through, and I swung around, and I paddled, and I paddled over the edge, and I took off, and I did my bottom turn, and I got straight inside the tube, right inside that spinning tunnel of water when it feels like time's expanded, like time slowed down, and you're riding on this aerated water, they call it riding on the foam ball, right back in the tube, and whoosh, the tube spat me out onto the shoulder, and I kicked out. And my friend and I started sharing these incredible tubes together. And this is what tube riding is like. When you get into a deep barrel, it certainly feels like time's expanded, like life has slowed down. I felt that I could curve that wall to my will. I really felt that. It's a magical, magical moment. It's an incredible moment. My God, he changed the way we rode tubes at, off the wall. It, like all of us at the time, we were thinking about what we could do to leave our mark 
and Sean, you know, had a huge influence of, of the involvement of modern day tube riding. He's doing things on single fins in the 70s that, uh, you know, a lot of guys aren't doing on their thrusters now. Um, you know, the barrel shots, there's some slow motion shots of him riding the foam ball. Um, just unbelievable modern, way ahead of its time, barrel riding. So we were sharing these waves together and it was incredible and I just felt like I was 20 years old again when you like can curve that wall to your will. It's an amazing feeling when you actually can feel that you can bend, and bend time and space to your command. So I paddled up to my mate after about two hours of surfing and I said, what do you call this wave? Because surfers have super descriptive names for the waves they ride. There's the Banzai Pipeline in Hawaii. Banzai because that's what the Japanese suicide pilots would say when they were flying into the American aircraft carriers in the Second World War and pipeline because it's like a pipe. Mavericks in uh, Northern California, it's so big and so radical that only Mavericks ride there. Cyclops in Australia, the wave is so round, it looks like a huge eye. So he said, we call the wave Wana. I said, well, why do you call it Wana? He said, we call it Wana because when it breaks, it looks like a human eye. I mean, wow, what a beautiful name for that break. So my last wave, ride it all the way down to the end of the break, and I kick out. And there's an amazing feeling in surfing when you're riding on that wave, and you kick out, and you have this feeling of freedom and airlessness, and you rise up over the wave, and then you go down into the water, and the water sort of envelops you. As the wood enveloped me and I went below the surface on my board, I'm riding a little board, six foot one, I'm six foot one, boards that like that much below the surface, only my upper body's out the water, I could feel there's something there. Surfers have that experience when you can just feel something else in the water with you, where you've got company. And I'm lying on my board and I'm not lying, the hair on the back of my neck stood up, the hair on my arms rose up, and I lay there on my board and I looked over and right there there's a black shape about eight feet long. And I look over on the other side of my board and there's another black shit eight feet long. And right then, right there, I thought, man, I am going to get consumed in stereo. One from the left, one from the right, and right then, bang! Two dolphins bounce out the water. Bash! And they land next to me and I went, yes! <laughs> and they swam off and I went... It's time to go in now. I swung my board around. I caught the next little wave in. And I'm walking up the beach with my board under my arm, dripping wet with my wetsuit on. And I walk past this old fisherman dude. He's standing there with a big rod, fishing for something really big. And as I walk past him, he said, you haven't been surfing out here, have you? I went, well, duh, what does it look like? He said, do you know what we call this wave? I said, yeah, you call it one eye. He said, do you know why we call it one eye? I said, yeah, you call it one eye because when it breaks, it looks like an eye. He said, no, mate. <laughs> we call it one eye because there's a 12-foot Zambezi out there in the lineup. And when it rolls over on its side to bite, all you can see is one eye. <laughs> <laughs> so I tell you that 
humorous story because it's a story of perspective. My perspective and the fisherman's perspective. Two perspectives of two slightly different realities. So our discussion today, I'm going to give you my perspective. It's not a prescription. I'm not here to tell you anything at all. You are all super bright, super clever people. Within every computer that you have in front of you, you have access to every bit of knowledge that's available in the world. All I'm here today is to humbly give you my perspective on a life that has been lived two ways. Passion. You can see I'm a passionate dude. And purpose. That's my perspective, and that's what we're going to give you today. So I hope you enjoy it. (laughs) Sean, that was great. I appreciate you showing that video. I mean, I think everybody has seen great surfing, but with that with that explanation and actually seeing the person that was you on the screen doing that. It's just, I watched the, the um, busting down the door the other day with my son and it's just incredible. I mean, that's the only word I can come up with it, right. come up, can come up with for it. I'd like to start by understanding and giving a little context to our viewers uh, and the folks in the audience. What led you to write the code? You'd already written the surfer's code, which is another uh, worthwhile book. What led you to write the code, your, your second book? You you know, you never know what can lead you in life from here to here. Things just happen. I got a call from a guy called Glenn Henning about 10 years ago. He started Surfrider Foundation, an amazing maverick thinker. And he said, I'm having a group of kids come down to the beach, to Rincon, famous surfing break. It was having severe environmental problems. It was... All the homeowners of the multi-million dollar homes were connected up to septic tank systems. When it rained, the septics filled up, the crap flowed out into the water. And Glenn, super committed guy, wanted to do something about it. And he said, I'm having a group of 100 kids come down to the beach. We're going to bring some media down there. And we want to create awareness of this problem. And if we create awareness, we can find a solution to it. He said, you've got a $100 budget, and I want you to... <laughs> Do something for the young kids. 100 kids, 100 bucks. <laughs> what can you do for 100 bucks? So my wife and I had solitude at the time. We had a big apparel company, and we thought, well, maybe we'll give them some gear. And I knew all the CEOs of the big clothing companies. So I thought, well, maybe I'll get sunglasses and, you know, whatever swag, right. uh, you know, that would stoke the guys up and the girls up. And then I thought, no, I'm going to do something else. So I went home and sat in front of my Mac. Half an hour, I wrote 12 lines. Every line begins with our will. And I distilled in 30 minutes everything that surfing taught me about life. And I wrote this little card called Surface Code. I want to read it to you. I'll never turn my back on the ocean. I'll always paddle back out. I'll take the drop with commitment. I will know that there'll always be another wave. I'll realize that all surfers are joined by one ocean. I'll paddle around the impact zone. I'll never fight a riptide. I'll watch out for other surfers after a big set. I'll pass on my stoke. I'll ride and not paddle into shore. I'll catch a wave every day, even in my mind. 
and I'll honour the sport of kings. Twelve lines, 105 words. I'll tell you, this little card, I'll swear, changed my life. I gave the cards out to the kids, 100 cards, 100 kids, and it turned into like a groundswell. The friends wanted them, the moms and dads wanted them. Just We started putting them in our clothes, started handing out thousands and thousands and thousands of these little cards. People started phoning me up, hey, Sean, we'd like you to come and speak at our organization about this concept of a code, surface code. Like, what can surfing teach you about life? Eh? So every line here is a metaphor for something important about life, the basic values and building blocks of, of character. So I started to talk at these huge organizations with huge speakers like Malcolm Gladwell and Richard Branson and Google and Cisco and General Motors, mega companies, thousands of people, all from a little card that I handed out. The card led to my first book called Surface Code, <clears throat> which was an exploration of every one of these lines, 12 chapters. Like, what does I always paddle back out mean? And what's the story behind it? Why did I write that stream of consciousness during that half an hour? Then I spoke to a little school here called Anacapa School in Santa Barbara and Professor Sweeney's geography class. And when I went to those two classes, at each of the classes, I said, why don't you guys write your own codes? Send them to me. So the students from Anacapa School sent me their codes. A lot of the students from Prof. Sweeney's class here sent me their codes. I had thousands of lines of code. They were so bloody inspirational. They blew my mind. Mm. I thought, I'm going to write another book. <clears throat> so I wrote this book. Every line, every chapter title, it's not mine. It's taken from one of the crew, from the US, UCSB students and from the Anacapa students. And the very first line I got back was chapter one. I'll be myself from a young 14-year-old girl. Elena Alcira. The book became really popular. It was number one in the teen section on Amazon. It was a popular book. Inspired by who? Inspired by you, crew. So you never know when you do something for someone what happens. Right. It's like right. amazing. Yep. So that's been my life for the last few years. Since I sold my companies, I have been going around and talking to people and, and hopefully inspiring them in a way through getting them to write their own code. And now I have some of the biggest business people in the world that write the code, and they write it with a team, and they stand up, and they represent when they read their code. Yeah. They represent what's inside them. And for the first time, sometimes teams hear what's important to the other person. And all the shit that's going on in this country at the moment with the election... When people read their codes, I'm telling you, you realize how similar we all are and how we all want the same thing. And we're not defined by our parties. We're defined by our code. That's what I believe. That's my perspective. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm sticking by it. <laughs> no, I think it's, it's hugely valuable, and I think it's valuable for all ages. So I went through... I went through the process. My wife, who's here tonight with us, you know, she went through the process. And I think very few times in life are you given permission to be retrospective, to be thoughtful. We feel like just don't have time for that. Like, we've got so many yeah, things we need to do. I've got things to do in my in life. Hurry, yeah. To actually sit down and be thoughtful is important. I, I, I'll share a couple of mine with you. One is I'm, I, my wife and I both want to spend more time in Hawaii. And so for me, saying I want to, I want to live aloha. I want to live more I aloha. Yeah, because that. anyone that's familiar with, with Hawaii knows the spirit of aloha and what it really means. Yeah. And it's, there's, some real, there's some real spirituality and value in that. Um, another one I had 
that I, that I came up with was I will accept what is. Sounds simple. But I'm an entrepreneur. I'm a fighter. I'm a pusher. I'm somebody that wants to change the world. And so as a younger person, I wasn't always willing to accept what is. Um, and I'm, what I mean by accepting what is is in my friends, in my family, my loved ones, people close to me, not trying to change people. I'm not trying to judge them and their faults. I'm accepting what is. So those are a couple uh, that I came, that I came up with. Amazing. Here we go, right up here. Uh, I share two as well. What's your name? Yeah, Hyrie. Hyrie, and um, I will share two things. One is I will try everything or things I want to try at least twice. Ah. And um, <laughs> and um, I will um, balance work and life. Cool. And the last one, maybe, um, I will help to build a company. Very cool. All right. Anyone else with the mic? Yes. Hey, uh, my name is Franklin, and the three that I'll share is I will be foolish. I will be a mentor and idol for all that I can. And I will sacrifice who I am for who I want to be. Ah, wow. No, no, you're good. You're up. Okay. Uh, my name is Vana, and I'll share two of them. Uh, I will continue to be blunt and honest and speak my mind and say what everyone else is thinking. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I will visit 20 places that I've never considered traveling to. Ah, okay. I like it. Um, I'm Brittany. I just have one. Um, I will spend less money on materials and more on experiences. Ah, I love it. I'm going to steal that one. Yes, I like that one a lot. Hey. Uh, my name's Colin. I'd like to share two. First one is I will appreciate the path. And the second is I will get more goosebumps. <laughs> I will get more goosebumps. So while you're walking back, can you explain I will appreciate the path? I'm a very anxious person, and I'm very much so obsessed with finishing things okay. and as fast as possible, and I'm tired of that. <laughs> I need to appreciate the process more, and I need to appreciate the way there. Excellent. Okay. All right. My name's Adam, and uh, I'm going to share three with you guys. My first one. I will remain humble in life, regardless of possession or status. I will admit guilt and take blame appropriately. And most importantly, I will refuse to judge anyone without having put on their shoes first. Ah, cool. Hey, guys. Um, it was really hard for me to choose, but I chose two. Uh, well, you can read as many as you want. No, some are really rude. <laughs> Give you a warning. Uh, so the first one is, uh, I will not be scared to take on my dreams no matter how big and risky they are. Yeah. That's like, a, like, I want to go to New York, so let's do it, right? <laughs> let's do it. And the uh, second one is to quit smoking cigarettes. Yes. I stopped for like a week, so. Yeah. All right. 
All right. Well, I, Sean, I have a, a number of lines from the code that I really like. One of them is, quote, sometimes you only need to say it to yourself to make your dream come true. And you tell that, you, you know, you, you, that line, the context of that line is, Sean sitting on, I don't want to steal your thunder, but just really quickly context. Sean sitting on the beach with a guy named Rabbit Bartholomew. Surf season's almost over. They're kind of talking about what they're going to go do. Sean's thinking, I'll go back home and be a lawyer. The rabbit's like, no, nah, man, I'm going to be a professional surfer. And tell, what did that do to you, that, just that utterance? So Rabbit and I were, uh, he's an Australian guy, young guy, comes from a very um, hard upbringing, no money, divorced uh, parents. But he had this powerful dream that, one day there was going to be a pro surfing circuit and we could be pro surfers. So it was the end of the season, 1975. We both had great seasons in Hawaii. I'd won a few contests. He'd made a few finals. Uh, The media was like following us around. And it was the last swell of the season. came up really big, like 12-foot pipeline, and we're just about to go out in the water and we're hanging out on the beach just waiting for that gap. And my life was planned. I was going to be a professional, but it wasn't going to be a professional server. I come from a Jewish family. I was going to be like a doctor, lawyer, you know. I'd already gone down the path of law. I'd been two years in university already. Um, and I said, so, Robert, what are you going to do? It's like crossroads now, because I'm scheduled to go back to university. And he said to me, I'm going to be a pro surfer, mate. And it was the first time I'd heard anyone like say that with conviction because there was no such thing as a pro surfer. And he said that I'm going to be a pro surfer mate. And I went, wow, that's the dream. And he verbalized it. He articulated it. And maybe when I think back now, and I mean, it was so long ago that it's kind of like with a code. When you verbalize it, when you write it down, when it's real, when you hear it, power, man. It gives the power. Yep. And I hadn't really, till you brought it up, thought of that connection to something that happened so long ago. And maybe that has sort of stayed with me all those years. And when I heard him say that, I went, pro surfing, man. I'm going with you. <laughs> you are not going on that road without me. Right, right. And that's what made it happen. Well, what's funny about that last comment is, you were competitive with each other. And so there's, if you guys know the surfing lore, the, you know, MR was another one, uh, Mark Richards, uh, and there was others. But, but really, there was about four or five of you that were at the top. And what I found fascinating about that story is you were super competitive. Super competitive. But you were super cooperative. You were all trying to help make yeah. this pro surfing. And, you know, there's that story about MR makes it, you guys don't make it, but he doesn't have the $50 yeah, to get into the competition. Money, yeah. Rabbit gives him the money. You know, so there was this, yes, I want to beat you, but, but we're in this together. And what I find remarkable about that is it's very analogous to startups that are creating a new industry. So if you have four or five startups that are, you know, doing something that's brand new, you end up cooperating. Even though you're competing, you want to win ultimately. You know that it's in the best interest of this new industry to work together. And I felt like that's exactly what you guys were doing. So it's so interesting, you know, John says that about <coughs> cooperating uh, regarding entrepreneurship. So now, when I go around, I speak to really interesting groups. So I spoke to a group three weeks ago, three or four weeks ago in Mexico. Okay, so these are the leading biotech companies in San Diego. 60 guys. 
The first guy I get introduced to, guy introduces me and says, Sean, you know, he just sold his company for six billion. The guy says, no, I didn't sell it for six billion. I sold it for 6.7 billion. <laughs> so you're talking serious guys. 60 of them, they're all in the same industry and they're all down there together to network, to connect. And you know what every one of them did? Every single one of those guys wrote their code. Okay? I had a guy, MIT, PhD, top 100 VCs in the country, email me and say, Sean, this has been the most powerful business experience of my life. So doing this little exercise, it's not an infantile, juvenile exercise. I'm talking power here. But if you don't do it, you don't experience the power. And when you do it in a group, when you do it in a network, mm -hmm. like when you're starting a company, I spoke at a startup here in Santa Barbara, 60 employees doing about 20 million in sales. He said, this is a 60 most, data company, 60 most important lines of code our company's ever written because every person in their company wrote their lines and picked one and we wrote it up on a whiteboard. Mm. So <clears throat> when you all collectivize group will, you don't know where it can go. Sure, you might think this is kumbaya. This ain't kumbaya. You can read the neuroscience research. You can read their latest psychological research on self-determination theory, intent, behavioral change. First step, yep. introspection, commitment, in order for any behavioral change or positive action to take place. So, so I'm, I'm going to take the first student question in a second, but I want to play off that a little bit further. So one thing that's really important for young people watching this, young people in the room, is you are creating a peer group whether you like it or not. And what your, your peer group, they weren't, they weren't getting high on the beach. They weren't just partying. They, uh, a bit of partying, maybe not getting high. But a, little, <laughs> a little bit of partying. A little bit. A little bit. No, but their focus, their yeah, focus, know, their focus was to achieve. Focus. And so you were attracted to that group. Yeah. So I think students, uh, young people need to, need, to, to, need to figure out that their peer group is going to help define them. And put yourself in a peer group that Very you want to be a part of. It should be a conscious decision, not just, oh, I just ended up with these, these folks. And for you, you probably didn't think about it at the time, but you could have gone left or right. But you stuck with those folks because they were driven, they were good, they were competitive, and they wanted to win. You were in that group. Yeah, we were, we were all, I must say, we did have that cohesion. Even though we wanted to kill each other in the water, um, there was that cohesion because we had this common mission. We had this common right. shared um, purpose. So in some ways we were like, yeah, we were like kind of a group of, of entrepreneurs because we had this vision, man, pro-surfing, industry, you know, how could we, like, perpetuate our lifestyle? And uh, together we, we all made it happen. It was definitely a group, yep. a group, uh, a group effort. And, and business doesn't happen with one person. Never. It's the collectivization of that, of that will. <clears throat> you know, I retired from pro-surfing after 16 years on the tour, and I went back to university. I'd, I'd always had one year remaining. I'd never finished my, my university. I went back, 
completed my university. And then I went back to university a couple of years ago to do my master's. I was fascinated with leadership. Like, how can you positively influence people on a mass scale? I'd seen what happened in my homeland of South Africa during the transition from apartheid to democracy, what Nelson Mandela had done. One man, eh? One man took a country that was composed of all these population groups and hatred and it could have been civil war. And he made it all happen through his leadership. And like, what is leadership? And you know, you can dive and dive and dive and read a gazillion different uh, interpretations about what it is. But to me, I'm going to give you my perspective and it's really, really simple. What is leadership? It's an ability. It's not a talent. It's an ability. It's something you can learn to influence and to inspire people to achieve a common goal. Simple. It's so simple. And all of you, every single one of you, no matter what you do, you're going to need that ability to influence and inspire people to achieve a common goal. Simple. It like in everything you do. I know a lot of you are busy and you know looking at the election result, but it's an important ability to develop and to train yourself to be. Perspective. I'm not giving telling you what to do, but that is my perspective on the on the kind of leadership. And it's so important for, for entrepreneurs. Otherwise you can have this greatest idea. Right. We all got a million ideas. Hey, Amen. You've got to commit to it. Commit to it, and then what are you got to do? You've got to get other people to commit to it, and you all go down that shared path together. Yep, and you've got to do that by talking about your, your goals. Let's, let's take the first uh, student's question. You founded... Hello? Go ahead. Um, you founded multi-million clothing brands Instinct in the 1980s and later on Solitude in the 1990s. What was different in the entrepreneurship process for Solitude versus your first time launching an apparel business with Instinct? Yeah, they were very, very different uh, ways I, I approached them. When I, I started Instinct, I was 21 years old. And at that time, there was like maybe two big apparel companies in um, the United States. One was called Hang 10, and another one was Ocean Pacific. But I could see that there was an opportunity to use that surfing image to create a product line that was core. It wasn't like mass-produced, but it was like core and really represented the best feeling of surfing, which is when you're inside the tube and you're operating on instinct. So I started the venture with some partners who already had a big company. So they had like the infrastructure, and I just came with this idea, and we became partners and then used their infrastructure, and we grew that way. So... It wasn't like we started from A. We sort of started from E for the growth curve because they, like, they had the factories and all that sort of thing. When I started Solitude, it was my wife and I. So first, you have a di- that dynamic because working with your wife is very different to a regular type of business. But we did it 
the hardware. I went out and raised the money. My wife designed all the product. I, I was the CEO. Had to bring in the team for op- operations, find the dis- you know distribution, supply chain. Really had to get in there and like get my hands dirty and be in those trenches, swinging away, dealing with the factors, dealing with the banks. It it, it was <clears throat> way harder doing it that way, and nearly lost the business um, a couple of times. Yep. <clears throat> But I'll tell you what, there's one line on the surface code that if you want to be entrepreneurs, that you should all, I think, take to heart and think about, and that's how I'll always paddle back out. Because if you're an entrepreneur, your ass is going to be kicked harder than you can imagine. You are going to be taken down on that coral, and you're going to be jammed there with a 20-foot wave landing on your head. And you're going to be wondering how you can just get back to the surface and then find your board to paddle back out. So you have to be ready, if you're going to be an entrepreneur, to paddle back out. And I always thought, and no matter what happened, I was always, uh, I always had that um, will, the will to paddle back out. Mm-hmm. You have to, because you will fail. Yeah, <laughs> you will. Let's, let's go ahead and take a, a, another question from the students. Okay. Um, my question is, uh, what would be lesson 13 that you learned after publishing Surfer's Code that you wish you could have put in the book? You know, John sent me the questions, and incidentally, to all the students that sent the questions, I thought they were bloody awesome. You know, I've had a lot of interviews with big magazines, and, you know, the stuff they ask you is so damn boring. <laughs> <laughs> but the questions were were great, and I mean, like, What's going to be the thirteenth line? I went. I went. Oh, that is such an interesting, interesting concept. And I thought, like, what, what would it have been? What could it have been? And um, John said something interesting. And he said, one of your lines of your code was about <clears throat> what is. Now. I live my life this way. <clears throat> what is, not what if. That's it. It's like when you're riding down that line on a wave, you don't look behind you. You're looking ahead. Like as an entrepreneur, you're always looking ahead. And for me, this was it, just 12 lines. Um, and then it was, was done. And I think to think about a 13th line would be going, well, like, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if. And if you're an athlete or an entrepreneur and you fail and you, and you get into that, like, well, what if, what if I'd have done that? What if I'd have, what if, what? And it's, it's called that downward spiral. It's very hard as an athlete to break out of that downward spiral when you think, thinking about, like, what went wrong? What, what, or what if I'd have done that? This would have happened. So it's like, what is it? I lost my boy. I lost my 15-and-a-half-year-old son in 2006 to a bad decision. He made a poor choice. He played a game, and he killed him. And right then, when I was trying to fight my way out of that terrible grief, I realized I've got to accept this. It's what is. It's not what if. What if I had 
gone down to South Africa the day before. What if my wife hadn't, what if he, it's what is. What is is how life has to be lived. Mm-hmm. And when you're suffering, it is a hard road to understand. It's what is, not what if. I want to go back to, on that heavy note, I want to go back to you as a youngster and, and how, you, how you really created a name for yourself and those other guys you were with. One thing you did is there was a surf spot called Off the Wall, which wasn't really surfed because it was a, it was a right and not a left, and people just didn't really surf it. They were surfing pipeline. Well, you guys, for a variety of reasons, just went down there and started surfing it. And people were going crazy, like, this, you're, this isn't surfable. Like, what are you guys doing? What I found was transferable to startups there is startups often have to write their own rules. They often have to play their own game. If you try to play the game that an established company has played, you're probably going to lose. But if you write new rules, you do things in new ways, you start writing backside on a crazy right that nobody should be writing, um, then people start taking your picture for the magazines. Then the crew starts coming down and, and busting down the door. In fact, there's one scene where there's like no camera crew at the established surf spot. They're yeah, all right. down there with you guys. And you wouldn't have done that if you hadn't broken those rules, if you hadn't established a new way of playing the game. Yeah, I think um, <clears throat> for me, I always wanted to just follow my own path. And... Um, I, I, I told you, when I got all the codes back from the students at UCSB and Anna Kappa School, and the first line I got back was, I'll be myself, from a young girl, 14 years old, Elena Alcero. I'll be myself. And I think maybe that resonated so much with me, because when I was 19 or 18, and I just wanted to, to like follow my own path as well. I want to do to make my mark. I didn't want to do something that someone else's way. Um, and I think it definitely has that connection with um, entrepreneurial spirit. You know, like, I, when I moved back to the United States in 1995, for two years I worked for Patagonia. You guys know Patagonia, what an amazing country, Yvonne Chouinard, what a brilliant bloke. I think I'm the only person that was ever hired at that company. The first time I knew anything about that company was when Yvonne showed me around the company for my job interview and then hired me on the spot. I knew nothing about it. But there's a guy, entrepreneur, powerful purpose. He said to me, Sean, it's the way it works. You do good, it's good for business. How easy is that? He said, I have proved that. Is it good? It's good yep. for business. Yep. And um, that dude did it his own way. You know what I mean? They closed all their shops today. Why? Because they want people to go and vote. You know how much money it cost them? He doesn't care. They close the shops, want to make sure my crew votes. <clears throat> and uh, I think that those are iconoclasts, I think is a good, those are the, I think, the successful entrepreneurs who go your own path. Yep, yep, yep. I'm a big believer in, in doing well by doing good. I'm, I, I've seen it in my own life. I'll take the next two question in a second. I want to I talk on something else that I thought was a good, a great entrepreneurial lesson in the book. You say, listen, I didn't learn how to tube ride by sitting on the beach. 
I think entrepreneurship's the same way. You can read 10,000 books on entrepreneurship, and until you start exercising those muscles, you're not going to get better at it. And I think what that allowed you to do, all of that practice, that practice, 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 you had that muscle memory that when you did go out there and ride pipeline, you had the confidence that you probably, probably weren't going to be killed because you, you had so much experience riding that wave. And if you hadn't, you know, you would have been like one of those guys that, got, that went out there and got Maytagged and just, you know, got thrown back on the yeah. beach and been done. And I think that's really important with entrepreneurs. I think they, you guys need to go out and create small businesses, make some mistakes, fail, it's fine. You should be doing it while you're in college so that when you get really tested by the real world, you're going to have already gone through some of that muscle memory. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's funny, you know, when I, I think when I was like I know, 18, I went to Hawaii. <coughs> and uh, I see people wearing these like super cool T-shirts it was called Matsumoto's Shave Ice. It was like a little shave ice stand there on the North Shore. And like everyone was wearing them. Everyone. Wherever I go, everyone wearing Matsumoto's Shave Ice. And I'm going, wow, these shirts are so popular. Everyone's wearing them. I take them back to South Africa. I'm going to make a ton of money. Because <laughs> if they like them in Hawaii, everyone's going to like them in South Africa. So I got my board back. I filled them up with like 300 of these shirts. <laughs> I'm 18 years old. I'm like, entrepreneur. I go back to South Africa. I couldn't sell one of them. No one in South Africa wanted my Matsumoto's shave ass t-shirt. <clears throat> but I kept swinging, and it, it taught me a, a great lesson, like what's popular in Hawaii. Right, right. <laughs> might not be popular in Durban, South Africa. Right. Um, <clears throat> but as an athlete, too, you, the path to success is not clearly defined. Right. And it's not the sort of golden road that you no, follow. it's never linear. It's like you've got to go into the bush yep. to find your way back. Yep. And um, I think if you maintain that powerful spirit, you can succeed. There's a, there's a great book you guys got to read. Uh, I think it's one of the greatest books ever written. It's called Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. You guys got to read this book. Man's Search for Meaning. So it was written by this guy who's a Viennese psychiatrist who was incarcerated at Auschwitz during the Second World War by the Nazis. He was a Jew. He was a psychiatrist and talks about choice and talks about attitude. How attitude is the fundamental choice that we make in life. And in the camps, the difference between life and death was attitude. People with a positive attitude had the hope, the optimism, would survive. People with a negative attitude would lie in their beds or wouldn't get up and they'd die. Mm. It's, it's just an amazing book about what's important in life and how to maintain that positive positivity in your life. Because as an entrepreneur, you are going to get jammed and smashed. Yep. And, and, and that's what I would talk with my team about. If we lost a sale or something, I always said, listen, if we learned from that, we didn't fail. We learned. And it's not Pollyanna, it's reality. Exactly. You get better by failing. Look, I'll take a, one more student. Yes. Um, you touched a little bit about um, your perspective and your attitude, but are there any um, actions or choices that you can tell us about that have defined what your attitude is? Or is it something that you just kind of innately had? You know, attitude... 
Like, where does it come from? Part of it's DNA. Part of it's from our parents. Part of it's from our friends. Part of it's from environmental influence. So I think I developed my attitude from my dad. Going to be an Olympic swimmer. Zambezi got him. His dream was destroyed. But all I ever saw from my dad was like love for the ocean, love for life, and zero resentment about what happened to him. Just imparting stoke and love to everyone around him. My mom went through 3,400 air raids on the island of Malta. She was in the most heavily bombed town in the history of the entire world. Hundreds of millions of pounds of TNT landed on them. Two homes, direct hits flattened. A miracle that she survived. The island of Malta in the, in the Second World War was so heavily bombed that every inhabitant of the island received the George Cross, which is the civilian equivalent of the, <clears throat> of the Victoria Cross. Hard times. Eventually had to be evacuated because the whole island was starving. Lost everything and then eventually ended up in South Africa. But from my mom, I got this incredible hope and the power of prayer. And even today, every time my mom says goodbye to me, she says, God bless. So I got this incredible faith and hope from my mom. So for both of them, they went through hard times, but they always had this hope this power and faith and optimism um, in the future. And then just being around people. I always had mates who were, wanted to go places. You know what I mean? My mates, my friends wanted to make stuff happen. Rabbit Bartholomew, Ian Cairns. And it's very much who you become is obviously who you want to be, but also who's with you. I saw so many people, man, hang around, with, hang around with losers, and I don't mean losers from the perspective of... I just mean people who are on the dark path. And it's infectious. That negativity, just like positivity, um, is infectious. So for me, I, I was lucky I managed to surround myself with with good people, which I think helped me have a strong attitude and, and a will to succeed and a will to inspire and a will to help others. I want to end on another quote. It's not yours, it's Yates, but it's one that I know you like, and it's, it's from a poem that you have on your office. Um, and I'd love to just kind of hear your thoughts on it. And I think this is a bit of the secret to success. The line is, a lonely impulse of delight. Okay. And I think entrepreneurs... The successful entrepreneurs, that's what they're seeking. They're seeking that lonely impulse yeah. of delight. They're not looking for money or fame or adulation. They want to satisfy themselves. Do you, you want to just talk for a minute yeah. about so, that? I don't know if you remember when I gave you the context right in the beginning. I said, I'm giving you my perspective of purpose and passion. Okay. The passion is the fuel for the entrepreneur. And the poem that, that John's referring to, it's by W.B. Yeats, one of the greatest poets of all time. And, I, and I, it goes like this. I'm just giving you a chunk of it, but you should read this poem. 
It's called an Irish airman foresees his death. And it's very pertinent to what's happening in our country today. A lonely impulse of delight drove me to this tumult. I balanced all, brought all to mind. The world to come seemed waste of breath in balance with this life, this death. The airman was just about to go up in the plane and he's deciding, why? Why am I going to fly? Why am I going up against the enemy? Is it for patriotism? Is it for loyalty? No. It's for the lonely impulse of delight. And that is that passion, that balance, like a surface, that balance between life and death. That passion is what, what drove me. And today, as an entrepreneur and as a person who tries to inspire and influence others, it's still, still what drives me, that passion, man. That's the fuel. That's the rocket fuel for all of you. Find the passion, because yep. that's the fuel. Find that delight and satisfy that yeah. delight. Thank you so much, Sean. <laughs> You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.